So we, we had heard some questionable reviews about that show about the Cecil Hotel on Netflix. Yes. But then we finally gave in and uh, watched it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We, so the first episode anyway, what did you think? I feel kind of bad saying this because it is a true story, but I feel like it was dragging on a bit for the first episode. And if all four episodes are about it, my voice cracking. <laughs> if all four episodes are about it, all four episodes about the disappearance of Elisa oh, Lamb. Yeah. yeah, that would be a problem if if it's all about that. Then yes, they are definitely dragging it on. And again, I feel bad saying that because it is a true crime story, and I want to be sensitive to the story. But well, I don't think you're disrespecting the story. It's just a matter of they're taking something that could have been told in an hour and dragging it on for four hours or whatever. Just if, so if they that's can the get case. money, I'm assuming. Yeah. All yeah. the shows we see, it's like they drag on and on because they just, I did notice that there was a little bit of, you know, they're telling about stuff that, uh, yeah, they could have could have bypassed that. It wasn't that important to the story, but I, I didn't think it was too bad. No, I didn't think it was bad. I was just curious on how long they're going to drag it out for. Yeah. TBD, I guess. <laughs> what are you talking about tonight? Tonight I have the Cleveland Torso Murders. Interesting. So I must be um, going down the line of from eyeballs to torsos. You're working your way down the, down the body. Yeah. Between 1934 and 1938 in Cleveland, Ohio, 13 people were killed by a serial killer. Only three of the 13 were identified. And within those 13, it was six women and seven men. Wow, only three identified? Yeah. That's crazy. In September of 1934, a young man found the lower half of a woman's torso. The thighs were still attached, but amputated at the knees. She washed up on the shore of Lake Erie, just east of Brattonall. The skin was described as red and leathery, in which Cuyahoga County Coroner A.J. Pierce noted it was due to some sort of chemical preservative on the skin. So they're re- preserving the body before they dumped it? That's what it sounds like. But it, it's just weird because it irritated the skin. Yeah, it was like all bizarre. red and leathery. That's what they described it. Bizarre. Only a few other body parts were found in further searches. The body was a female in her mid-30s whom was never identified. The head was never found. She was referred only as the Lady of the Lake. Two years later, when this killing was added to the official killing total, she became known as victim number zero. A year later was when the case officially began, and it was already in another part of the city, now the infamous Kingsbury Run. In September of 1935 is when two teenage boys discovered the decapitated emasculated corpse of a white male at the base of Jackass Hill, where East 49th Street dead ends into Kingsbury Run. The body was nude, clean, and drained of blood. Rope burns appeared around both wrists. Coroner Pierce stated the cause of death was decapitation. The victim was identified as Edward Andrassy by fingerprints. He was a 28-year-old white male. He had an arrest record and frequented the Roaring Third, which is a police district. Crazy. Bizarre. Yeah, it gets more bizarre. 
Nearby police discovered a second body that was also decapitated and emasculated. It appeared to be covered in the same chemical preservative as the Lady of the Lake. It was a 40-year-old male that was never identified. He seemed to have been dead for at least a couple weeks. In January of 1936, a woman discovered half the body of a female victim that was neatly wrapped in newspaper and packed in two half-bushel baskets. The baskets were left along the Hart Manufacturing Building on Central Avenue near East 20th Street. Ten days later, everything but the head was recovered in a vacant lot near Orange Avenue. The cause of death was also decapitation. However, the killer waited for rigor mortis to set in before separating the rest of the body. Fingerprints identified her as Florence Polillo, a waitress, barmaid, and sex worker. At the time of her death, she lived at East 32nd Street in Carnegie on the edge of the Roaring Third. Wow, you're right. It, it is getting more bizarre. It's yeah. just crazy. Yeah. In June 1936, two young boys discovered the head of a white male in a pair of trousers early one morning in Kingsbury Run, close to the East 55th Street Bridge. Police found the body of the man in his 20s the next day. He was dumped in front of the Nickel Plate Railroad police building. The corpse was clean and drained of blood, still intact except for the head. Pierce once again determined the cause of death to be decapitation. Even though there was a fresh set of fingerprints and six distinctive tattoos on various parts of the body, police were still not able to identify the victim. A plaster reproduction of the man's head and a diagram of the tattoos were displayed at the Great Lakes Exposition of 1936. Over 100,000 people saw the death mask and tattoo diagram, but he was still never identified. So they displayed it there... To try to get help from the public. Yes. Okay. It wasn't just a display. It seemed to be have just for like the help of the public. Okay. The original death mask and three others from the case are displayed at the Cleveland Police Museum. Really? So they do have that displayed. Wow. July in 1936, a teenage girl found the decapitated remains of a 40-year-old white male as she was walking through the woods near Clinton Road and Big Creek on the near west side. The victim had been dead for about two months. His head and a pile of bloody clothing were found nearby. Based off the quantity of blood that seeped into the ground, the man was most likely killed where his body was found. Now, I think it's interesting that so far, most of the people finding the victims are teenagers. Yeah, that didn't even dawn on me, but maybe just because they're more curious than other people and they're out there... You know, digging in areas that, you know, other people just don't normally pay attention. That's true. Like with the basket or the, yeah, the baskets, I wouldn't look in that. Yeah. (laughs) To be completely honest. September of 1936, while trying to hop on a train at East 37th Street in Kingsbury Run, a transient tripped over the upper half of a man's torso. During a search at a nearby pool, which was nothing more than a big open sewer, Police found the lower half of the torso and parts of both legs. A diver was sent to make the recovery. There were over 600 onlookers in which the killer could have very well been possibly among them. Wow, 600 people, that seems like a lot. Yeah, that just seems... It's interesting to me that people would want to see a body being recovered. Yeah, maybe they didn't have much to do back then. I guess that makes sense, but that's still... I don't just know. seems like a lot of people. Yeah, just, just for that. Even just, even today, you know, it seems like a lot of people. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's not like it's on social media back then. Yeah. Well, they didn't have TV either. 
<laughs> I know. He was in his late 20s, and the cause of death was decapitation. Coroner Pierce noted the lack of hesitation marks on the body, which indicated a strong, confident killer whom was familiar with the human anatomy. The head was cut off with one bold, clean hit, causing the victim to die instantly. Identification was never made. Decapitation, so bizarre. You don't really hear that that often. At least these days, I don't really. Yeah, from a serial killer. Yeah, I just. Or from any killer, right? Yeah. I was just like. An interesting choice. I just, I wonder what the psychology behind that is. I'm waiting to find out if they ever catch the guy. I'm assuming no. I'll get there. Okay. (laughs) With six brutal killings in one year, the police had neither clues nor suspects. The Cleveland Press, the Cleveland News, and the Cleveland Plain Dealer all reported the killings and lack of a suspect almost daily, giving the killer the nickname the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. Giving in to pressure from Mayor Harold Burton, Safety Director Elliot Ness gets more involved in the case. Coroner Pierce calls for what the newspaper dubs as a torso clinic, which was essentially a meeting of police, the coroner, and other experts to discuss information and to profile whom could be responsible for the gruesome murders. It's interesting how um, newspapers, even back then, have their own little nicknames like the torso clinic. Or yeah. a meeting of them trying to profile. Yeah. yeah, they love their hooks. Yeah. I do, I vaguely remember this story. I didn't know anything about any of the details. Yeah. But something related to Elliot Ness and when he was in Cleveland. Yeah, there's um, very interesting stuff about him based from this case. So I'm not going to try to pronounce their last names because I'm going to mess it up. But detectives Peter and Martin were put on the case full time. They'd move through the run and the Roaring Third, often dressing the part on their own time. By the time the case ran its course, the two interviewed more than 1,500 people, and the whole department had interviewed more than 5,000 as a whole. This would make it the biggest police investigation in Cleveland history. Wow. November's elections still had Harold Burton as mayor, but Coroner Pierce is replaced by the young Democrat Sam Gerber. Gerber's dedication to medicine, along with his degree in law, put him at the lead of the investigation. February 1937, a man finds the upper half of a woman's torso washed up on shore east of Bratinall. This time, the cause of death was not decapitation. She was already dead when that occurred. The lower half of the torso washed ashore three months later at about East 30th Street. She was in her mid-30s and once again, never identified. A teenage boy discovered a human skull under the Lorraine-Carnegie Bridge in June 1937. A burlap bag containing the skeletal remains was sitting next to it. The remains turned out to be a petite woman about 40 years old. Dental work allowed the unofficial identification of one Rose Wallace of Scoville Avenue. Police followed every lead they had, but it led nowhere. There were labor problems in the flats that summer, and the National Guard had been called to maintain order. A guardsman standing watch by the West 3rd Street Bridge saw the first part of victim 9 in the wake of a passing tugboat. Police recovered the entire body aside from the head from the waters of the Cuyahoga River over the next few days. The abdomen had been gutted and the heart was ripped out, indicating a new type of viciousness in the approach of the killer. Victim was mid to late 30s and never identified. Just crazy what he's, whoever this is, is doing to these bodies. It's like... They're experimenting. Experimenting or a very angry person. Yeah. 
they do sound very angry, impulsive. Yeah. In April of 1938, a young laborer found the lower half of a woman's leg along the banks of the Cuyahoga River on his way to work. At first, he thought it was a dead fish from a distance. A month later, police retrieved two burlap bags out of the water containing both parts of the torso and most of the rest of both legs. For the first time, the coroner detected drugs in the system. They weren't able to determine if the drugs were to immobilize the victim or if she was an addict because of the lack of arms. She was also never identified. August 16, 1938, three scrap collectors searching in a dump site at East 9th and Lakeside found a torso of a woman wrapped in a man's double-breasted blue blazer and wrapped again in an old quilt. The legs and arms were discovered in a makeshift box wrapped in a brown butcher paper and held together with rubber bands. The head was wrapped similarly. Gerber noted that some of the parts looked like they had been refrigerated. Police discovered another body only yards away. Both bodies had been placed in plain view from Elliot Ness's office window as if the killer was taunting him. Neither were identified. I didn't hear that about Elliot Ness and the, the killer taunting him. Yeah. That, that's interesting. If it, I don't know how in plain view, because I feel like if it were in plain view, how did he not see anything? Well, again, how people don't really pay attention to what's around them. You know, it could be sitting out there and... It seems as if the killer is getting more bold because, you know, more plain view sightings and not like buried in the woods. Right, yeah. On August 18, 1938, at 12.40 a.m., Elliot Ness and a group of 35 police officers and detectives raided the hobo jungles of the run. Eleven squad cars, two police vans, and three fire trucks went into a large cluster of makeshift shacks where the Cuyahoga River twists behind Public Square. They worked their way south through the run, eventually gathering 63 men. Police and firemen searched the deserted shanties for clues, and on orders from the safety director, Ness, the shacks were burned to the ground. The press severely criticized Ness for his actions, and the public was afraid and frustrated. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounded like a desperate act on Ness's part. Yeah. It's sad because you're burning down everything these people have. Yeah. Based off what evidence. Right. Sound sound like he's just lashing out. Yeah. Because he's angry because they, they can't figure out what or who this person is. Yeah. In July 1939, 52-year-old Bohemian bricklayer, and I'm going to skip his last name again because I'm going to mess it up, named Frank, was arrested by County Sheriff Martin O'Donnell for the murder of Flo Polio. Frank lived with her for a while. Further investigation revealed that he'd been acquainted with Edward Andrassi and Rose Wallace. So basically all the people who were identified. Hmm. His, quote, confession turned out to be a blend of incoherent ramblings and neat, precise details as if he had been coached. Before a trial, Frank was found dead in his cell. He was five foot eight and had hanged himself from a hook only five feet, seven inches off the floor. Gerber's autopsy revealed six broken ribs that had been obtained in the sheriff's custody. No one believes Frank was the torso murderer, nor does anyone know why Sheriff O'Donnell did believe. Well, so what happened after he died? Were there more murders? Oh, sorry, you're getting to that? I just (laughs) want to get to the end. I'm (laughs) interested to hear what happened. Yeah, we're almost there. Okay. The Kingsbury Run murders remains one of the most baffling cases. Talks still go around as to who may have been the killer. Elliot Ness had a suspect who he believed he was undoubtedly the killer, 
The suspect continued to taunt Ness for years after the killings. The official police records on the case were either lost, destroyed, or removed. So Ness was being taunted afterwards, so that implies that they killed the wrong person. Yes. Well, not killed the wrong person. They shouldn't have killed him, regardless of what he may or may not have done. But they definitely killed the person, and he was not apparently the killer. Yes. Although it is interesting that I had not seen the name of who Elliot Ness suspected it to be. Yeah, that's interesting. So he was taunting him, but were there additional killings? It was uh, after the killings had ended. So is it possible that somebody who wasn't the killer was taunting him? I'm sure that is possible. Or maybe maybe the killer just moved on to somewhere else? You know, they could have been taunting him for the fact that he burned down all those people's belongings and homes. Right. So it could have very well have been separated from the actual killings. It was just odd that he would stop killing unless he wanted to throw them off. Yeah. Of course, he could have moved somewhere else. The lack of communication back then. That's very true. Killing somewhere else and nobody would have put two and two together. That is true. I'm curious to know if there's any way they can track that now. Yeah. But that is it. Well, that was gruesome. Yes. And a lot of information. A lot of dates, too. Yeah. Well, it's just it's just a bizarre case. Yeah. I don't know. I've never been a big fan of Elliot Ness, so I don't. I can't say I've ever seen any of the shows or movies about him. So I don't know if that's ever been covered. I honestly have never heard of him until now. <laughs> Before your time. Yeah, I don't, I, I'll have to plead ignorance on Elliot Ness. I remember the shows that were on, but yeah. I'll just have to plead ignorance because, I, again, I never really paid attention to that. I'll say it was before my time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would assume it's before your time, it being in the 1930s. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm not that old. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, so previously we were talking about haunted bridges. Yes. And we spent quite a bit of time down in Texas. Yeah. Down San Antonio way. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe we were joking around a little bit. Not sure if we made the devil angry. I'm pretty sure. But certainly didn't mean any disrespect. Again, we're saying he's a hardworking man. Yes. The devil's a hardworking man in Texas. Yes. Plenty for the devil to do down in Texas. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so the day after we did that episode, I was doing a crossword puzzle, and one of the clues was for a five-letter word for a San Antonio landmark, which is, of course, the Alamo. Yeah. Well, Alamo, not the Alamo, because that would be eight letters. (laughs) And that's our math lesson. (laughs) Yes. So I don't maybe a coincidence, just, you know, telling me to do a story, maybe a little poke from the spirits, telling me... You know, hey, show some respect for San Antonio. Yeah. I don't know. So anyway, so I decided to do a story about the Alamo. And so here we are. Now, I don't want to get into a big lesson on the insanely complex history of the Alamo, but I'll give a quick overview as quick as I can, just in case you're not familiar with what went down there. I don't know how familiar you are. I don't know what the educational system was like when you went to school. Not good. Okay. Do you even know what the Alamo is? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've heard of it, but you could freshen my memory okay, on it. Yeah, I think that's where most people are. They've heard of it. So during Texas's war for independence against Mexico, the Battle of the Alamo took place from February 23rd to March 
6th of 1836. In December of the previous year, this is going to get a little boring, so I apologize, but I think it's important so you understand yes. the history. In December of the previous year, a group of Texan volunteers led by George Collinsworth and Benjamin Milam captured the Mexican garrison at the Alamo, seizing control of San Antonio. So the Alamo was actually a, like a fort with various buildings. Like I said, the history is a bit complex, much more complex than that. But one of the buildings was a chapel, and that's the one that you most see in the pictures. It's actually the front of the chapel that was part of the Alamo complex, if you will. By February of 36, Colonel James Bowie and Lieutenant Colonel William B. Travis took command of the Texan forces in San Antonio. The commander-in-chief of the Texan forces, Sam Houston, argued that San Antonio should be abandoned because of the low troop numbers. But Bowie and Travis decided to dig in and defend the fort with no more than around 200 defenders at the time of the battle. Only 200? Yeah. Davy Crockett, the famous frontiersman, being one of the defenders. I've heard of Davy. You've heard of Davy Crockett, but you haven't heard of Elliot Ness. <laughs> you probably heard it from your grandfather. Because <laughs> it, it was a big show in the, in the 50s, I think. Why do I keep thinking Davy Crockett is like a food thing? A what? Food. Food. Like a uh, like brand or something. Like Davy Crockett beans? Is that a thing? No. <laughs> <laughs> the reported size of the Mexican force that attacked the fort on February 23rd varies widely between 1,800 and 6,000 men. Wow. They were commanded by General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. Not to be confused with the red-suited gift giver, Chris Kringle de Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the Texans held out for 13 days before the Mexican forces breached the outer wall of the courtyard on March 6. Santa Ana was said to have ordered his men to take no prisoners, but not everyone in the fort died. About 15 to 20 women, children, servants, and slaves were spared, but nearly 200 lives were lost. The Mexican forces also suffered heavy casualties. That number varies as well. I read between 400 and 600, and I also read between 600 and 1,600. So, oh, wow. But just figure a lot of men died on, yeah. both, on both sides. In April of that year, Sam Houston and around 800 Texans defeated Santa Ana and his forces near present-day Houston. That victory ensured the Texans' success in their battle for independence. During that battle, Remember the Alamo became a battle cry, a symbol of resistance and resilience of the Texans as they attacked. So, like I said, quick history, hopefully quick. And like I said, I know the history lesson snooze yeah. fast, but I felt that at least a brief history was necessary. But the, the history is very complex. If you're into the history, then certainly go, go look it up. Stories of ghosts at the Alamo go all the way back to the weeks following the battle. Santa Ana ordered that all of the buildings of the Alamo be destroyed and Colonel Jose Juan Sanchez and his men were sent by General Juan Jose de Andrade, I believe, to the site to carry out the orders. Approaching a chapel on the grounds with the intent of tearing it down, six ghostly monks wielding flaming swords materialized. Swords? 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 <laughs> we were saying swords. Swords. Yeah, that's why I said swords. 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 Well, it is spelled swords. 
swords. And Colonel is spelled Colonel. <laughs> Approaching a chapel on the grounds with the intent of tearing it down, six ghostly monks wielding flaming swords materialized before their eyes. The men retreated and reported back that they had been confronted by six diablos, or devils. So they were ghosts. I know you say ghostly, but ghostly to me can be very pale. <laughs> no, they yes, they were confronted by six ghost monks. Okay. Wielding flaming swords who said, no, you're not tearing this place down. Yeah. Andrade wasn't happy, and he took some men to go destroy the building himself, only to be met by the same six Diablos, but they received a warning to stay away from the buildings. So basically, that's the story of why the Alamo still stands, hmm. even though they wanted to tear it down. I'm surprised they listened. They seemed so determined. Yeah. In more recent years, many visitors claim to see a young boy's face peering out of the high windows above the gift shop. Windows that are not accessible to the public. Hmm. Visitors have reported seeing two small boys, about 10 to 12 years old, tagging along with the tour groups. It is believed that they are the sons of Anthony Wolf, who were mistaken as combatants by the Mexican army and killed. There was one story about a tourist young daughter who insisted a young Mexican boy about teenage years stood beside her the whole time they were in the Alamo. She said he told her about the battle and that he was there. He said he had been there a long time but could not go home. When her father asked who she was saying goodbye to as they left, she told him Jaime, the Spanish pronunciation for Jamie. Uh -huh. She pointed him out to her father, but he could not see anyone, although she insisted he was right there. The site briefly served as a prison in the late 1800s, and the prisoners and guards reported seeing ghosts, one being a sentry that paced along the roof, and the prisoners would complain about being awoken by screams at night. Mm. Sounds terrifying, but also sad. Yeah. Tour guides and tourists have reported seeing figures materializing from walls of the buildings or hearing sounds of battle, ghastly screams, and haunting whispers. I read a visitor saying they saw a tall Mexican officer walking slowly through the building or on the grounds with his hands behind his back and shaking his head in apparent sorrow. He is believed to be one of Santa Ana's commanders, General Manuel Fernandez de Castrillon. These guys have long names. Yeah. Who opposed the final assault on the fort, saying it would be a bloodbath. So supposedly they see him walking through in despair and disgust at what had happened. Yeah, that's sad. Yes. The misty spirit of a woman is said to appear at night next to the water well near the church. There is more than just the ghosts of the Alamo in San Antonio. So I wanted to go over just a few, few of them. I mean, probably many, many more because obviously San Antonio, San Antonio has been around for a while. So Yeah. But the Menger Hotel, which is near the Alamo, was built in 1859 by William A. Menger, a German immigrant. It was, is a very luxurious hotel, becoming very popular and gaining nationwide fame. Famous guests, including General Robert E. Lee, Ulysses S. Grant, and Teddy Roosevelt stayed there. Have you heard of them? <laughs> yes, I've heard <laughs> <Okay>. of them. <laughs> As with the Alamo, the Menger has a very extensive and interesting history that I won't go into, but they also have an interesting history of hauntings. 
so much so I was thinking about that I should do a segment on the hotel itself. Maybe I'll come back to that. Yeah. But for now, for now, I'll just mention uh, one one of the hauntings. Said to be one of the most cited ghosts is that of Sally White. She worked as a chambermaid at the hotel and lived just a couple of blocks away. Unfortunately, her common-law husband was a class A asshole <laughs> with anger issues. He apparently lost his temper often and took it out on Sally. After a huge argument, Sally took off, and while she was running down the street, her husband shot her three times in the back. Oh, wow. It took her two days to die from her wounds. Two days? Yeah. The hotel paid for her funeral, and the receipt for the expenses is on display at the hotel. Wait, wait. Why are they putting it on display? Well, just to show that, you know, this, that the, the hotel, hotel's history, I guess, oh. you know, that, that they had paid for her expenses. Sally is often seen continuing her work. People have cited her walking the hallways with an armful of sheets or towels entering different rooms. One woman said she got out of the shower and entered her room to find a woman that she said she could see through, Sally sells she sells, <laughs> folding sheets at the edge of the bed. See through or not, if I walked out of the shower into my room and saw someone in there, I would sheet my pants. Sheet my pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking of how I would feel if I walked out of the bathroom and there being someone I mean, it's nice that they're folding. Yeah. I mean, you have to think that initially it would take a moment to register that they're see-through. Yeah. Right? But initially you just see somebody in your room. I don't I would. I would freak. Yeah. That's a no for me. <laughs> the Mangaroo is not the only hotel in the vicinity of the Alamo that is haunted. There is also the Emily Morgan Hotel, which was built as a private medical building in 1924, that might be an interesting one to, to look at, too. Yeah. It was designed in the 1920s Gothic style that was common for skyscrapers during that period. So it had, like, the gargoyles and stuff. Mm, uh, that's interesting. In the stone. And, the, and there is also the Hotel Indigo, which sits within the original grounds where the Alamo once stood. Probably circle back on that sometime. Maybe wait a while, because I think we've spent a lot of time down in Texas lately. Yeah. And probably should move on to some other states. Yeah, I feel like we need to give recognition to other states. Yes. Well, we were back in Ohio this evening again. Yeah, that's true. That's all I had. That was it. That was story. Interesting. Very yeah. sad. Very sad. Yeah, nothing too exciting, but just wanted to give a little respect to San Antonio. San Antonio. <laughs> just want to give a little respect to San Antonio because obviously Texas has a very rich history. Yes. And San Antonio is a part of that. Anything else tonight? I don't think so. Great. And we'll just leave it at that. Thank you very much for joining us. Make sure to visit next week for more weird and creepy stories. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 12 past 3 or email us at podcast at 12past3.com. Good night. Good night. Good night.